in any given week, we get somewhere in the ballpark of about 30 new client inquiries in MedMail and turn down 28 of them. Let your values guide every aspect of your practice and watch it grow. Our website, there are no dollar signs. Uh, there's very little emphasis on, you know, the amount of money we recovered uh, over the years. There's an emphasis on expertise and on experience and on teamwork. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, where we give you the tools you need to take your personal injury practice to the next level. Sometimes the skilled get lucky and are given rare opportunities that will change the course of their career. At just 27, Drew Britcher was given the chance to take a medical malpractice case to trial. Back then, in 1987, he recovered an unheard of $1.2 million. Over the past two decades, the co-founder of Britcher, Leon, and Sergio has recovered over $250 million, has tried nearly 100 cases to verdict, and has served as either counsel of record or amicus counsel in nearly 40 reported decisions of the United States Supreme Court, the New Jersey Supreme Court, and appellate division. But he has not built his empire alone. I sat with Drew to discuss how to build a strong reciprocal relationships with other firms and explore how the philosophy of practice drives marketing. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. Being at the forefront of marketing is all about understanding people, so let's get to know our guest. Here's Drew Britcher, co-founder of Britcher, Leone, and Sergio on when he first knew that he would be a lawyer. It's going to sound a little bit weird and lame, but kindergarten. My father was in the 1950s, the manager of the United States Senate restaurant. By the way, I'm not quite that old. I'm a late life child for my family. I wasn't born until 1959. But my dad, having run the Senate restaurant when I was a kid, gave me a whole bunch of books that he collected while he was in D.C. And I kind of had this, ah, everybody who was a leader was a lawyer. So wanted to be a leader, wanted to be a lawyer. Well, it's nice that it clicked so you could really set that path. And a lot of people, you know, even myself included, I went to college, got a history education degree, and here I am doing digital marketing. And it was nice that you had that path and could see that future for yourself. Well, I will tell you the most valuable part of my undergraduate education is my social studies teaching certificate, because uh, being a trial lawyer, it's like teaching a bunch of high school students, only a different group every trial. Your first 16 years, you spent at other firms really making a name for yourself, trying a lot of cases and, and kind of going up to the ranks. And, and you became partner at one firm. When did you know it was time to open your own practice or go out on your own? Well, kind of at some level forced upon me. My initial two partners in this practice and I, we were partner, just brand new partner and associate, but all three of us in roughly the same age bracket. And the firm dissolved as the senior people all kind of hit the point of having to start hitting their retirement funds. And we went separate directions. I joined a different firm. And then the three of us got together four years later to create uh, the current firm. It's really interesting that Monet is not as common in legal and they don't have that big exit 
where it's more individuals take over the firm or like, there's like a merger. So they just chose to dissolve, which is really interesting. Yeah, the, the dissolution was really driven by how their partnership agreement was structured. And so it, it was a pretty tumultuous time for all of us. And it would be fair to say that none of the three of us had the opportunity to plan for doing something else the way we might have liked to. We basically had, I think it was all of about two months to settle somewhere else. So let's talk about those early days. So you have a tremendous amount of experience in, in MedMal and PI cases. Did, did you start off niching down that sub area of law of, of MedMal or did you kind of start off as as general PI? You know, how did you make that that transition? Tell me about that. When I was in law school, I clerked my last two years for a firm that was pretty much a MedMal firm. And I clerked directly for a lawyer who was a nurse attorney. She took me pretty early on to the medical library and taught me how to do medical research in the days when we still did them in books. And an event that occurred one night where I found something doing you know, some medical research that turned out to be an article written about the very case that the senior partner was handling at that time. And it kind of took a case that was, you know, a good case and turned it into an not only great, but phenomenal case. And it drew me in. So when I was getting out of law school, I was specifically looking to join firms that did MedMal or PI. And when I got the opportunity to join a large firm with a small PI MedMal department, and kind of became the partner in charge's MedMal associate while someone else was his PI associate, it really gave me a great opportunity to develop into that focus. Sometimes luck and skill combined are really good. The partner in charge of that department made a decision to leave. We had a case come up for trial a couple months later that the only other person in the firm they knew was me. And so at the ripe old age of 27, I was trying a medical malpractice case involving what ultimately ended up in an amputation that by no means should any 27-year-old be trying as their first case. And back in 1987, when million-dollar verdicts were pretty rare in New Jersey, I got a $1.2 million verdict. And the next thing I knew... I had a lot of people questioning whether I was him when I showed up for the new client interviews because I was too young. One lady once told me, you know, you can't be him. I have bunions that are older than you. Oh, boy. (laughs) That's an amazing story. And, you know, getting that $1.2 million verdict. And I imagine that confidence kind of grew from there. And they probably felt a lot more comfortable giving you more of those cases, which then in terms kind of all that momentum starts to occur from that. And not for nothing, by total fluke, and again, luck beats skill sometimes, I got covered in one of these jury verdict publications, and it was the front page of that particular edition. And then they decided to use that particular edition as their promo, so everybody got a copy. And then they put it in the national and on the front page, and everybody got a copy. So I had people I went to law school in New York who were now suddenly making me their go-to guy in New Jersey. 
Fantastic. I've spoke to many PI attorneys and, and most don't do MedMal. Well, they'll do some small variation of it, but 99% of the cases they, they refer out. And is it the competition? Why is it kind of the more difficult to get into and, and why do people approach it differently? Well, I'll start at the backside of that and it's expense is a huge component of it. I think the total expense in my $1.2 million verdict in 1987 through trial was under $10,000. And today, you cough and you've spent $10,000. We find the average file, we've got 50000 in it just to get it to the point where there's a conversation about resolution. There's a you know 100000 in most of our cases. By the time you complete a trial, we've had cases with a quarter of a million dollars in them before trial was even reached. In light of the fact that you either, A, are putting your own money in that many people don't have, or trying to find very unique financing, which is what we've been able to do, you really are in a position where it's very hard you know, to do this. I just want to touch on that financing aspect because we've touched on last episode, overfunded whole life insurance and you know, being your own bank. And then there's Esquire Bank where you can borrow against the value. What's some of those things in terms, because the cash flow can certainly be an issue because you accrue all these costs before you get the settlement. So so do you have any input in regards to that? I do and, and, and I don't in a way because we probably started who knows how many years ago with getting a bank to give us a line of credit that was basically a five-year revolving line of credit where we just paid the interest. And for a period of time, we went along where you know the cases would settle, new money, the money would come back, we'd roll it in. We'd get to the end of a good year. We'd choose to have some, you know, phantom income, which anybody who does what I know understands what I mean by phantom income. And we kind of balanced it that way to the point where, you know, now we have a much, much more significant line, same bank. And part of it is because of taking phantom income from time to time in good years, we have about double the amount in actual pending disbursements as we have on that interest-only line of credit. So the bank feels comfortable that they're covered by the fact that we have twice as much impending disbursements as we have out on the line. Drew puts careful intent in every aspect of his firm. He explains that how you want to portray your firm should guide your marketing. We believe that our niche in the marketing world is about the combination of experience and reputation and teamwork. Certainly, I've done this for a very long time and, and tried a lot of cases and had great success. But you know, part of that is the team that developed that ability. Initially, my partner, Dr. Leon, who's a radiologist as well as an attorney, and my former partner, Minnie Michaels Roth, who left us several years ago to become one of the special masters of the United States Court of Federal Claims. I got to be the one who went to court and did all the things because the teamwork behind me saw to it that everything was in place. Our firm has a logo, uh, the, the, the scales of justice with intertwined serpents from the, you know, from the caduceus of medicine. The tagline is uniting medicine and law, rebuilding your future. And that still continues, although on our PI side, we tend to use these days 
you know, the tagline of insurance companies have their lawyers, let us be yours. Are websites de- developed with a little different mindset than some? While we work on SEO considerably, uh, we've always made the determination that ours is a reputational or a reinforcement site rather than the primary because, I mean, in any given week, we get somewhere in the ballpark of about 30 new client inquiries in MedMal and turn down over the telephone 28 of them. So we're not in a position where we're in need for work. Always can use better cases, you know, no matter how good they are. But therefore, you know, the site's developed with certain things in mind. The very first thing a jury does after they've been picked is violate what the court told them and go look at your website. So our website, there are no dollar signs. Uh, There's very little emphasis on, you know, the amount of money we've recovered uh, over the years. There's an emphasis on expertise and on experience and on teamwork. Many, many years ago, we made a conscious decision to start sharing some of our medical research with some of our colleagues and allowing them to donate into a charity fund our firm has had since pretty much the beginning. And that has allowed us to not only make great connections, because I'm a huge believer and the networking side of what we do, because so much of the work, as you mentioned, so few people do MedMal. The vast majority of MedMal is, you know, is going to come by referral. And so you know, we use it as a networking opportunity, but it gave us a chance to do a lot of really great things over time. We've subsequently added the fact that occasionally people come to me and ask me to um, be personal counsel to a physician or to be an expert witness in a you know, legal malpractice case. And any money that comes in from that goes into the charity fund rather than to us individually. And so you go to our website, you know, right after you get homepage and about, you get to charitable works. Because what I want is a juror not to see some sense that we are an emphasis on money and more an emphasis on giving back. That's a very smart approach to your positioning. And I was going to ask that because I would imagine that the referrals were, were heavy and that you would have to maintain that positioning. I know when I was doing my research for our conversation today, that was one of the things that stood out to me was like, hey, right on the homepage, you have the, the experts in this, the, the medical field. And I thought, oh, if I was in this circumstance, that would be very appealing for me to understand that they knew both sides. The other thing I did notice, the, the charitable right in the menu very, very prominent area, not buried, not a drop-down menu. And because you're getting referrals, you need to make it not only in the case that you're talking about from the jury, but but also from your your referral partners. You know, when you're going upstream in those those relationships, in terms of, of the relationships, let, let's let's talk about that. Obviously, the proof, right? These amazing cases and settling these big cases, but what are what are some of the tactics that you're personally taking to try to develop your network in addition to coming on the podcast and other things like that? Before the pandemic, I ate dinner at some bar association function somewhere in the ballpark of three to four times a week. I've always been that person for our firm. When we started our practice, I did the marketing, Armin did the business, and Mindy did the office. While some of those things have evolved differently over time, you know, I still am of that mindset. When I was 
young, I made an effort when I went to a courthouse that I'd always take the longest route leaving the courthouse to run into people, to talk to people, to make those connections, to visit the judges that I knew, the staff of the judges that I knew, the law clerks of theirs that I you know, came to know. I've always tried to never say no to the invitation to teach and to participate in things like ends of court. And I think, you know, that is a large part of it. But I think then, you know, getting out and being somebody who who engages in the, you know, the social aspects of your community. I've been on the development committee of a food pantry for a very long time. And I've also worked with you know, uh, a few of the battered women's shelters and youth shelters, not just in making contributions to them financially, but to try and get out and occasionally do something yourself that might just bring a tear to your eye when you do it and remind you why you want to do other things. And I think that every contact you make is another potential person. The networking interfaces back with your marketing both from a website and traffic standpoint. But even for that matter, the Yellow Pages is a non-existent thing anymore, okay? I still spend the money to have the back cover of the Yellow Pages in the counties where I am because it's a reinforcement. You know, we do run some television ads in the market that we're in. They're perhaps different than the average PI firm or MedMal firm, because a percentage of them are very much focused on the fact that I'm a certified civil trial attorney, that, you know, those, you know, crazy uh, ranking things rank me highly each year, that Armin's a physician, and the images and et cetera are based upon those things. And we don't talk. Uh, Somebody else talks about us. And then, and there's never a, any like call us and we're going to get you money because it's got to be consistent with the image we're trying to set. I've had judges have come up to me in courthouses and say, you know, I didn't know that television advertising could be done in such a, in their mind, professional way, uh, which is a, a great compliment to have, have paid. A percentage of them is a focus on that being where we are and that combination of medicine and law has an advantage, you know, in the non-medmal field as well. Certainly, you talk to judges, judges will tell you the best trial lawyers, they come before them on both sides are the medmal plaintiffs and medmal defense lawyers, because they're kind of constantly trying more cases and trying more cases that go for three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, I've done seven a portion of our advertisements are public service announcement in a way. My partner being a radiologist, me being the child of parents who both suffered from smoking-related cancers, uh, when the societies came out with their recommendation for doing low-dose CT for people who have long-term smoking histories, and we saw that a lot of the primary care groups weren't making that recommendation, even though it was now, you know, a U.S. Preventive Task Force recommendation, we not only started taking on cases involving that, 
we started running advertisements on the idea that if you're a long-term smoker and you haven't had somebody tell you about low-dose CT, talk to your doctor with no call us if that didn't happen without any, just a let's hope it saves a life or two. And we've had one or two people over the years that we've been doing this who've actually said to us, you know, I didn't realize. My doctor never mentioned. I went and got one. I got found out I had a small treatable lesion in my lung and I'm cured instead of finding out when it was too late. And so that kind of feeds into that same profile of who we are and who we want to be. So different than how most personal injury firms position themselves. And I got to imagine, you know, that Simon Sinek, the why, when you hear those stories, it's got to just invigorate you and, and make you feel validated that the decision of to do those types of things really are worthwhile. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, all it takes is anybody who's ever been through having a family member who've, you know, suffered long-term from the cancer and, and you completely understand why any chance to help or impact somebody else and their family makes it well worth whatever the investment is. Let, let me play on the opposite side of the coin because, Drew, you, you have some massive settlements. Some individuals are looking for to maximize the amount of money they earn. So have you seen a situation where it's been a disadvantage or overwhelmingly, just the way you're positioned as experts in the medical community? On very rare occasion, maybe. But I would say this to you, MedMal, the first thing you got to do is win, which means the first thing you got to do is prove the medicine. You don't do that part, you don't win. The statistic in my state is that 74% of all the MedMal cases that get tried to verdict are won by the insurance companies. That means there's 26% left for the rest. So any lawyer ever tells you that they do malpractice and they never lost the case, they're either lying or they haven't tried very many of them because it's not a field in which that can possibly be true. And I can certainly say over my career, I, there's cases I've lost I thought I should have won. And there are cases I won that by all right, I should have lost. Juries get it right 95 to 99% of the time. And I would tell you that reasonably speaking, I think people first and foremost want to know they're in the hands of somebody who has the ability to try a case when it has to be tried. The expertise to know when they should and shouldn't be tried. And the ability to prove the medicine at a level that isn't completely dependent on somebody outside the office. I mean, having the ability to have not only my partner being a radiologist, but there are two nurses in the office, I think it more than makes up for that. If people really want to know the numbers, they ask me, and the numbers are just as favorable as anybody else's. What's a top med mal firm looking to achieve? You know, are they looking to hit, you know, the 80%? Reasonably speaking, you know, this is off the cuff, but in the last probably decade of the cases we've taken past the point of filing suit, something on the order of about 90% of them have been compensated. 
and probably seven or eight percent of that 10 are not ones we lost. They're ones where some factual information turned out to be different as we went along than what we started with. I want to circle back around here, Drew, but I want to, you know, you touched on values a ton and I just wanted you to briefly talk to me about how your firm handles birth injuries and the prevention work you aim to do. We meet these kids. We don't just meet the parents. We go to their homes. We see the circumstances of what the parents are living through. When we do day in the life videotapes, you know, for eventual trial, we go to the house. We're there to see and stand in the background and see what's getting taped. We recognize that if there's a place we can make a difference, it's so often in those instances where somebody has a child who has never walked, has never talked, in some instances is, you know, fed by a tube, in some instances is, you know, got an apparatus breathing for them. And the birth of your child is the most unbelievable thing in the world. And when it gets turned on its ear, so many parents just don't know where to turn. They don't know how to to find the help. And being able to provide them with the resources necessary for their child to have dignity and for them to have some semblance of a life. I can tell you that sitting in my drawers, a note from a client years ago, when we resolved the case, She wrote me a note and she said, I know you know what you did for my son. I don't know if you know what you did for me, because having the ability to have reliable and dependable help that does the things I need them to do in my house gives me the ability from time to time to go out and have a lunch, have a dinner, and know that I don't have to worry that my son's okay. You're hoping that each time you do one of those, there's something that comes out of it for the doctor that means the next time they'll do something, you know, differently. I'm sure you've probably heard of the area of law in medical malpractice called shoulder dystocia, where, you know, a child ends up with an arm that is, you know, limp and sometimes withered and et cetera, because a a physician, rather than being a catcher, decides to be a puller. And, you know, stretches the nerve and, and, you know, tears it and the child has that problem. Well, you know, years ago, we had a a spate of these coming from the same hospital, from a situation where the residency director was somebody who we had sued as a physician himself. And where, you know, during his deposition, shockingly, when I asked him how a particular maneuver was done, He described it in a manner that I I later decided to refer to as the exorcist maneuver because he essentially told me he was going to turn the baby's head and the shoulders would follow, which is the last thing you want to be doing. And so when we settled, I think what was the fifth or sixth case against either him, one of his residents or a doctor who he had trained in residency. We refused to settle it unless the hospital agreed to take our shoulder dystocia animation on how to properly perform the maneuvers and show it to their OB residency classes 
from then then on because we were just tired of seeing these kids who couldn't raise their one arm above their head fully. And to be candid, the number of those cases we've seen since coming from that hospital has been almost non-existent. And isn't that really what we want? I've told people in the past that medicine got so good that I was out of business. I could find something else to do and I'd be happy about that. Drew is an incredible example of living your values and making positive impact. He explains why it's so important for a law firm to be involved in the community. Nothing else. We should be leaders in our communities and people who hopefully serve as an example of what you would want your community to be like. My ex-wife was once the assistant director of uh, one of the food pantries. And so my kids grew up making the lasagna for the soup kitchen and packing bags with donated food. God bless the work that she did. And with the help of some colleagues from the New Jersey Association for Justice, we started a turkey drive for Thanksgiving almost 20 years ago now. And every year we donate as many turkeys as the year. So for 2021, we donated you know, 2021 turkeys. Having dealt with some battered women's shelters, having dealt with some kids who were, you know, at risk. Uh, Those two have always become very high in our consideration. YCS, which is Youth Consultation Services, has always been close to our heart because uh, the first year what we took the money and did was we went and bought Christmas gifts for the kids who were in these youth shelters that um, they were there because they were in bad family situations and it was hopefully something that would be temporary but for many of them ended up being where they tended to grow up. We don't generally, you know, talk about it, but the Christmas shoes is based on the concept of us finding an angel, as we call the intermediary, who helps us find a way to do something for um, a parent on behalf of a child where the parent may not see the next Christmas because there's a Christian band called New Song that did a, a song several years ago about the Christmas shoes. The little boy who's trying to buy his mother a pair of shoes because this is her last Christmas. Okay. And, you know, we've, we've gone out and done that kind of thing where we found a kid and this is what they want to do. We've used contacts that my partner has through his element of sport and Olympic with others to get people to be able to go to Olympic level things and give them the limo to the airport and the flight and the car and the place to stay and et cetera, because giving that child that chance to have that positive memory for the lifetime. It's putting out so much good energy. It's got to come back to you. And and I, I can just feel the, the, the kindness. It's the epitome of the the go-giver book. And I hear it a lot, you know, giving without expecting anything in return. And I think there's a lot of power in that. It's not why you do it, but it is your values. And it's kind of elevating humanity, so to speak. And You try uh, one little yeah. space of it anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. Personal injury attorneys that are listening or any, any of our audience that wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to contact you? They can start off by always going to our firm's website, which has now become blsattorneys.com since we brought on a new partner, Ty Sergio. 
And so it's Pritchard Leone, Sergio, BLSAttorneys.com. They can obviously call me in um, either office, Glen Rock or Morristown, but Glen Rock is, you know, the, the original office, so 201-444-1644. Or they can email me, drew at medmalnj.com, anytime. When a firm has enough cases in the pipeline, decide which ones to take, the typical marketing channels, websites, TV ads, or back of phone books can shift focus from visibility and exposure to reinforcement. Drew has developed a full caseload over the years, thanks in no small part to deliberate upstream referral networking of colleagues in the community. Networking is all about relationships. Drew makes regular deposits into his network by simply just taking the long route out of the courthouse. Stopping to talk to judges and their staff, he always says yes to teaching engagements, and he has even taken up positions on the development committee of a food pantry, women and youth shelters. To help build relationships with other firms, Drew shares medical research with his colleagues, allowing them to donate to a charity fund. This is a great way to network while benefiting the community. I'd like to thank Drew Bricher from Bricher, Leon and Sergio for sharing their story with us. And I hope you gain some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.